Good evening. Good evening. All wired up here. Uh, multiple microphones. This is very fun. Uh, it's great to be with you tonight. Um, I am uh, coming to you from the Denver area. I live down south in a suburb Highlands Ranch, uh, Colorado. Uh, here's my family. I bring them with me everywhere I go. Uh, they're actually all at a football game tonight. My, my middle child, he's a sophomore in high school, is playing their last football game tonight of the season. And uh, most likely, even if they win, this will be, be it. They're, they didn't quite make it into the playoffs. Uh, I, I was talking to one of the football coaches the other day and said, is there any chance? And he said, well, we would have to win big and five other teams would have to lose. <laughs> it, doesn't seem very, it doesn't seem very likely. So, uh, but that, that's the crew. And our oldest, the, the one on the left there, Aaron, uh, months ago when, uh, when we had scheduled, when Father Mark and I had scheduled for me to be here, uh, I there was no chance that he would be home because he plays football for the University of St. Thomas in, in St. Paul, Minnesota. Uh, but he quit the football team about a month ago and uh, it's fall break for them. So he flew home last night uh, and I left this morning. So uh, we, we were joking uh, about, well, it's so good to have you home. Uh, bye, see you later. <laughs> Uh, one of the, so the big news for us uh, in just the last few months, uh, hope you don't mind me sharing pictures. It's like, you know, when you're a speaker, it's like pulling out your wallet and, or taking out your phone and showing all your family pictures, you know? Uh, but this, this is actually pretty big news because uh, none of our kids have ever been to one of the Disney parks. Uh, and if you're familiar with the formed, uh, the formed platform, uh, my wife and I did a number of presentations with the Beloved series which is a marriage prep and a marriage enrichment uh, series that's on there. Well, a parish down in Orlando, Florida, did the, did the Beloved series all last year and in, into the summer, uh, and they evidently really liked us, uh, and call, you know, contacted me through the Augustine Institute and asked if we would come down, both of us, to do uh, an, an evening at their parish. And I was like, there's, there's just no way that my wife would ever do it. Uh, we went on a trip once together and left the kids with friends. And one of the kids ended up in the hospital. Another one ended up really, really sick. And uh, she, she, she just never forgave herself for going on that trip. And I was like, so when they called me, I was like, there's just, there's just no chance that this could ever happen. Uh, and they, they actually really, really wanted Meg to come. And, uh, and so they just were not willing to, to say, uh, to accept no. Uh, so ne next thing you know, they called me back about three different times and I kept saying, I'm telling you, like my wife just won't, won't do this. So what, what ended up happening was they offered to buy tickets for all of our kids. They got us a condo on the beach, you know, about 30, 40 minutes from the parish. Uh, and well, then when I started seeing that they were, you know, I was like, well, we've never been to Disney. Uh, and so next, you know, they're, they're, they're throwing in, uh, somebody, a parishioner was able to get us into Disney World, and then another parishioner got us tickets to Universal Studios. Uh, so all of this stuff ended up coming together. It's like, we, we ended up having this amazing family vacation out of me going down to speak at this parish, which I, I really wasn't trying to milk it for all that it was worth, but <laughs> it, ended up, uh, it ended up being a pretty nice uh, experience. 
And then uh, just, just for fun, here's, uh, here's my youngest in his Halloween costume. He's pretty proud of it. You can't see him, but he can see us. <laughs> and then just for, just for humor here, uh, you're all familiar with this. Uh, I've only been there one time in my life. But uh, when I graduated from college years ago, uh, one of the things, uh, a couple of buddies and I were talking about what, we'd, what we would love to do after we graduate from college. And uh, we came up with this great idea. We were at Steubenville at Franciscan University. And we came up with this great idea, like, wouldn't it be amazing to just drive all the way across the whole country? Before we have to go get real jobs and start working and we're not going to have time to do any of this stuff. Uh, so we, we one, of, one of them, their, uh, one of these guys, their dad had a Suburban. And uh, we came up with this great idea of putting a mattress in the back of the Suburban where we could take turns taking naps. And the other ones would drive, and we'd drive from Steubenville all the way out to California, northern route, and then drive back on the southern route, right? Well, one of the priests on campus who was a dorm director, Father Joe, uh, we would hang out in his apartment all the time. Uh, we'd watch TV with him, we'd hang out with him, he would do Bible study stuff with us, and we, we were just very close with, with Father. Well, a lot of these conversations, scheming up this whole after-graduation plan, was in his apartment. So what do you think ends up happening? Father Joe finally says, I want to go with you guys. <laughs> well, he's much older. You know, like, we're just graduated from college, and, like, I don't think anyone thought this through. Like, I don't know if this is a good idea. We're going to want to be up really late at night and never go to sleep, and he's going to want to sleep, and he smokes cigarettes, uh, which when you're driving in close quarters in a car sometimes makes things a little bit uncomfortable, right? So Amy picked me up at the airport today, and she said, have you ever been to Rapid City? And I said, I don't think I ever have. So she actually drove me around and gave me a tour. Uh, I saw the cathedral and, and several other things today. Uh, but I had this realization this afternoon, like, yes, I have been to Rapid City, and it's intimately connected to Father Joe, Okay. <laughs> We, we came to Rapid, we drove into Rapid City kind of later in the evening, had dinner, and by the time we got here from Ohio, right, all of us were so sick of cigarette smoke because Father Joe kept smoking in the Suburban while we're driving. And we go into this restaurant in Rapid City, and Bill, one of my buddies, <laughs> I'm sorry, this is so funny, I'm going to crack myself up, but they were selling in the little the little shop in the restaurant, they were selling this box of things that you could put in the end of a cigarette that would make the cigarette blow up. <laughs> and Bill, Bill just thought it would be hysterical to play a prank on Father Joe and, uh, and put these in his cigarettes. So that night in our hotel, he gets a whole pack of cigarettes and puts one in like every single one, right? So the next morning, we're leaving from Rapid City to go down to Mount Rushmore, which isn't a very very long drive, but of course Father Joe is already lighting up a cigarette on our way, right? So before we ever even get to Mount Rushmore, and everyone was kind of nervous because I was supposed to drive, but Father Joe grabs the keys out of my hands and says, no, I'm driving. And I kept trying to say, like, Father Joe, it's my turn. He was like, I'm driving. <laughs> 
And, uh, and I, I tried to argue, but there was no arguing. You know, so next thing you know, he's, he's driving down the road and he lights up a cigarette. And we're all sitting there in the car, you know, looking at each other like, when is it going to blow up, you know? And what exactly does it look like when it blows up and how bad is the blow up and all of that, right? And uh, so, of course, it, it explodes. <laughs> Tobacco and smoke just go all over Father Joe's face while he's driving down the road, you know, and, and so he, he like swears, swerves off the road and slams on the brakes and stops and gets out of the car, and he's cussing, he's, he's so mad, and the three of us thought this was so funny, and we're, we're just laughing hysterical, like I'm sitting in the back seat with a pillow in my face, just like trying to stop laughing, and then he's screaming and yelling. And the more he yells, the more it made me laugh. Because I was like, his anger was so funny. And every time you would, like, take the pillow down and look at him, his face was all black from this. <laughs> and so just to see him mad yelling at you was even funnier, right? So that's my memory of Mount Rushmore. <laughs> I, I don't even remember the presidents because all I remember is Father Joe yelling, yelling at us. We, we made it to California like two or three days later, and we wake up one morning, we were supposed to be going to Disney, Disneyland, uh, and we, we wake up and there's a couple of suitcases in, in the hotel where we're staying, like all sitting out there, and we're like, what's going on? And Father Joe comes out, uh, and he's like, I'll see you guys later, I've got a cab. And we're like, what, what? And he's like, I'm flying back home, I'm done. <laughs> He never made it for the southern part of the trip. Uh, it, was, it was over at, at that point. So, so anyway, uh, Amy, I'm sorry I forgot that wonderful story for you earlier today, but I remembered it this afternoon. So here's what we're, we're kind of talking about tonight. And I, I loved the introduction uh, that Father Mark just gave uh, on behalf of the bishop, right? Like a, a lot of his words for us. Um, Generous hospitality, beautiful theme, but transitioning to the second pillar, uh, lively faith. But we don't want to leave generous hospitality behind. And so I, I want to share what I would believe to be the secret to not letting it go. The secret to generous hospitality You've heard these words before in the church. John Paul II said them many, many times. Pope Benedict repeated them. Open wide the doors. It fits with generous hospitality in some ways. We're opening wide the doors of churches. We're, we're, we're opening our, the doors of our homes. We want to welcome other people. We want to be hospitable and, and, and inviting, welcoming, right? But open wide the doors actually first refers to opening wide the doors of your heart. Open wide the doors. Invite Christ in. The key to generous hospitality to other people is generous hospitality to Christ. 
the more that we welcome him into our hearts, the more that we invite him into our lives, the more that we open ourselves to the encounter that he desires for us, the more we're going to be hospitable to other people. Does that make sense? When we're generous and hospitable to him in our own hearts, it actually increases our capacity to love others. Because it's actually him who starts doing it through us. It's beautiful. Have you opened wide the doors? Let me give us a little visual for what I think this could look like. Because, and I don't know if this was your your experience growing up or maybe still your experience today. Uh, does anyone have a formal living room in their house? We, we had one growing up. I, I grew up not far from here actually in uh, Cherokee, Iowa on the farm. And uh, we had this little front room. Kind of, my mom called it the formal living room. No one was ever allowed in there. Like, the older I got, the more confused I got about this room. It was just like, what a waste of space. My mom literally had plastic coverings over the couches. So that if anyone ever did sit on it, you would get no dirt on it. And the, the couches were white, which was not a good color, right? So, I, I don't know, it was, just, it was just confusing, you know, particularly when I was younger. But as I got into my teen years, I would get into arguments with my mom because... If I ever even walked in the room or tried to put something, you know, put a bag or to sit down on one of the, the pieces of furniture in that room, like, I would get in trouble. It's like, you can't be in here. This is the formal living room. It's like, what is the point of this room? We, we don't ever do anything in here. And she was like, it's for, it's for greeting special, special guests who never come. I've never seen anyone ever in this room, ever. Like, what... what why do we have this space in our house, right? There's a way, just track with me for a second, there's a way that some of us invite Jesus into that kind of room. And that's all we want him to, to do. He can, he can you know, it's, this, it's a space for special, special guests, which he would be. We keep the room very clean and very tidy. We don't ever let anything else ever happen in that room because this is a place where we greet and welcome special, special guests. We have a lot of control over this room. There's no dirt on the couches. We keep plastic over the couches so they won't ever get dirty. And if Jesus comes, we'll take the plastic off. But the place is immaculate. But we'd never, you know, God forbid, let him into the family room or into the kitchen. You know, would we let him upstairs into one of the bedrooms? Not one of the teenagers for sure, right? Febreze, guys, Febreze. <laughs> Spray everything. Spray everything in there. It's what I do to my sons. I, I buy them cans of Febreze. You know? It's like, please, go into your room and just spray it everywhere. <laughs> what about the basement? You know, the room down in the basement that just has become the collect-all, where you just got piles of stuff? Jesus, if, if you want to be generous in your hospitality, 
He's not going to be satisfied with the formal living room. Are you with me? He's going to want to go into the family room, into the kitchen, into the living spaces. He's going to want to go into the bedrooms. And guess what? He'll get into the bedroom and say, what's in the closet? What do you have in here? He's going to want to go upstairs and downstairs and into every space. And generous hospitality is not only letting him, but taking him on the tour. I'm kind of embarrassed about my teenager's room, but I'm going to take you up there. Maybe it might motivate him to clean up, you know. Have you let the Lord into every area? Have you let him into every space? Are you embarrassed about areas in your heart, areas in your life where you're just not so sure you want to let him into those? If if you want to be hospitable to others, you got to let him into those spaces. This, This is a God thing, right? This isn't This isn't just a nice idea. This is how God does stuff. This is the mystery of the incarnation. Jesus didn't come and be born in a royal palace in in, in a, you know, in in, in beautiful robes and and a nice bed. He was born in a barn, a filthy, dirty barn with animal dung all around him. He was laid, his first bed was in a feeding trough. This is how God comes into the world and it's how he wants to come into our world, into our life, into every nook and cranny, into every dirty space, into every uncomfortable area. He wants to come. He desires to encounter us actually more there than in the formal living room. Generous hospitality. Will you welcome him? Will you greet him? Will you let him into all of those spaces? You can't pretend with God. You, you know what I mean? You, you, ever, you ever met somebody that when they pray, they pray in a different voice? It's like they become a different person to talk to God. I, I kind of laugh like... God actually knows you the other times when you're not praying. Like, why do you have to use a different voice when you're praying? He knows us through and through. He knows everything about us. We can't fool him. We can't pretend to be something different. And you know what's amazing? He loves us to the depths of our being. He loves us in our brokenness. He loves us where we're hurting. He loves us in our dreams, in our aspiration. He loves us in our weaknesses, in our struggles. Even our deepest, darkest secrets, our sins, our addictions. He loves us in those spaces and wants to be with us in those. So one simple way that we can practice this. We're we're all familiar with monastic movements, monasteries, convents. People are called 
to live in those. That's not most of us. Most of us haven't been called to live a monastic life. But we understand monastic spirituality, and we've seen people who have been called to that life, and there's been tremendous fruitfulness in their life, and, and I think in the world and in the church because of how they've been called. Every person, particularly those of us who are called to more of an active life, we're actually called to what, what I would term monasticism of the heart. A certain practice of monasticism inside. So as, as I go through my active life, I pray, I'm in relationship with God, but I, I practice this monasticism of my heart by being aware of how God's moving in my life as I do the things that I do. So a way that you can practice that this weekend, right? And this is all in line with this generous hospitality that I'm talking about. An invitation for us. You're going to go through, I mean, you look, look at the schedule between over the next 24 hours. You got to talk tonight, a to talk tomorrow morning, a series of workshops, and then a series of workshops, and then a series of workshops, and, and then another talk and closing mass. I mean, in the next 24 hours, you're just going to get inundated with blah, a lot of stuff. There, there's no way that you could actually absorb all of that in the next 24 hours. So here's how you practice this monasticism of the heart, this generous receptivity. You, and a lot of you are already doing it. You're taking notes, right? You're, you're, as, you're, as you're hearing things, you're writing things down, which is a good starting point for this. Pay attention to when your heart jumps, when something really stirs up inside you. As, as different speakers are saying things and, and you, you find something kind of surging in your heart, like, hmm, you, you feel something stir in you, write that in the margin. Put a little star, like, okay, write down whatever the person said. You're going to miss the rest of the talk if you start thinking about it in that moment, which you don't want to do. So you write down a word or two or a little sentence in the margin that will remind you, like, oh, wow, I had a thought there that kind of jumped, uh, jumped up there. Right? I'm going to come back, I'm going to go back to that later tonight, or I'm going to go back to that tomorrow morning and, and, let, and ask the Lord, like, what, what were you trying to show me there? It's a, it's a practice of paying attention because many times God will speak to us through the surges in our heart. We call, it, we call them movements, thoughts, feelings, and desires. When, when those thoughts, feelings, and desires surge in us, particularly on the deepest level of our heart, the spiritual level, we, we want to be receptive. I, I think you could even say hospitable to the movement. And don't miss it. In, in, in a setting like this, 
you, you could have that happen three or four or five or even more times over the course of the next couple days. And, and by tomorrow night or Sunday morning, you, you, you may not remember any of them. But if you capture the few words that would remind you of them, this is, this is the practice of, of, of what I call monasticism of the heart. Capture the moment, be generously hospitable to it, the movement. What's God trying to show me here? What's God trying to do, right? Open wide the doors. I, I believe that this all comes down to the encounter. Allowing ourselves to encounter God and being generously hospitable to that encounter. The, the easiest way for me to, to think about this and, and I think share with other people, what, what, what does that mean? Is to just think back over, over my own life at some of my encounters. One of my first ones, I was only nine and a half years old. Up till that point, had lived a, fa- a fairly tragic life, actually. Uh, lots, of, lots of tragedy in my family, lots of brokenness, uh, lots of problems. At nine and a half, my dad had been paralyzed for nine years since I was just six months old. Tragic accident with a chiropractor of of all weird things. But it left him paralyzed from the neck down when I was six months old. So my my whole childhood was without my dad. He he was in and out of our house for about the first three or four years and then was put into a nursing home where where he he was just getting round-the-clock care. During that time, one of my sisters died. My two older brothers became drug addicts. It was, it, was, it was a rough time. So at nine and a half, I found myself in, in, in a weird circumstance. My mom had taken us kids, invited us kids to go with her to a Pentecostal prayer gathering. I didn't even know what it was. I'd never been around anything like this in my life. And it was actually the Catholic prayer group at our parish that had heard that this guest speaker was in town we were all going to visit him. So here's the encounter. Nine and a half years old. I'm listening to this Pentecostal preacher who, who literally is, he has a Bible in his hand and he, he's walking back and forth and he's waving his Bible, you know, in true Pentecostal fashion. You know, he keeps opening up his Bible and he'd read verses and then he'd start shaking his Bible and he's waving his Bible. I lasted for about 10 minutes, and then I fell asleep. I, I don't know how, actually, because he was quite entertaining, uh, but I was 10. And, uh, you know, it's like my son Brian, who's almost, he'll turn 10 in December. Every single time we go to church, he falls asleep during Mass. Uh, and I keep giving him a hard time, I'm like, Brian, come on. He, he's received his first Holy Communion now. <laughs> like, you have to stay awake during Mass. Come on, I make him sit up, you know. <laughs> Uh, I don't know, like something about being in church like puts him in a coma. So I fall asleep. I wake up to people clapping, which is evidently the end of the talk. 
when the clapping subsides, the preacher says, if anyone wants to personally experience what I've been talking about tonight, I want to invite you to come up here so that I can pray with you. I jumped out of my chair and started walking down the aisle. I don't know why. I literally hadn't heard anything that he said because I was sleeping. And so it just didn't make logical sense. But all I heard was like, I, I want to invite you to come down here so that I can pray with you. That sounded cool to me. And so I just like jumped out of my chair and started walking down the aisle. This was a big, big gathering. There was probably a thousand people there. When I started coming down the middle aisle, my brother, who's a year older than me, was like, I'm not going to be outdone by my younger brother. He starts following me and was trying to get ahead of me. So the two of us are in this. <laughs> so the whole, the whole place starts erupting in laughter. And then, and then I was a little bit confused, like, why is everybody laughing? And I'm looking around, like, what's going on? And then I realize we're the only people that are making our way to the front. Which is a little weird. But I, I, I really think that we just moved so fast. It was like he wasn't even done with the invitation. And like I was just like making a beeline for the stage. So he ends up acknowledging us in front of the whole crowd. He's like, folks, stop. Everybody just stop what's happening. Because something very holy is happening here right now. These two young men racing to the front. God's moving in there. I mean, so he started, you know, started getting Pentecostal on us. Started preaching, you know. He was like, I'm going to pray with these young men. God has a special gift for these young men tonight. Nine and a half, right? That guy prayed over me. And all I can tell you is, if somebody would have had like two electrode things and just stuck them against my skin and just jolted me with electricity, that's what it felt like when this guy prayed over me. Now, maybe you could say, you know, power of imagination of a nine-and-a-half-year-old. I don't know. I felt something. I, I, it, it was so strong that I, I knew it was real. I knew something had happened to me that it just, like, I, I, remember, I remember looking around like, who just touched me? What just, what just happened? My brother had the same experience. The man said, and uh, I'm sorry if I'm stretching some of your spirituality into things that are more charismatic, um, but it was just our experience. I had never been exposed to anything like this in my life, so it, it was very genuine and very real for us. But the man said that he felt like God uh, wanted to give us the gift of tongues. He goes, I'm going to pray over you again because I believe God wants to give you this gift. And... Uh, I'd never, I didn't, had no idea what he was talking about. I'd never, hardly ever read the Bible in my life. I was, I was only nine and a half. Uh, like, gift of tongues, what the heck is that? You know, and so he starts praying over us. And uh, he was encouraging me to, to give voice to this new gift. It's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. So I tried. Uh, nothing really happened. My brother opened his mouth and like a language started coming out of him. And I, I remember being shocked, like, what is going on? Like, he's taught, like, like, it sounds like a language, you know? So we go home that night, fired up, you know, like, I, we, were, we were trying to sing songs. Again, we'd never been to a prayer meeting in our life. 
We're, we're driving home in the car and we're trying to sing the songs that we had just heard, which we didn't know all of them. So we're mixing songs together and mixing verses and mixing words. It's, I'm sure it sounded ridiculous if anyone would have recorded it. But if anyone actually saw our car driving down the street, I think they would have called the fire department. We were on fire. Like the car was just like, ah! you know. We get home. My brother says, Mom, I want to call Dad and share my new gift with him. And my mom's like, that's not a good idea. You know, he's just going to like start talking in some foreign language. Like, what, how are you going to share this gift, right? Well, so she's saying, no, 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 you can't do that. You can't do that. My dad's been in a nursing home for six years. He hates God. Doesn't want anything to do with God at this point in his life, right? My brother sneaks down, finds another phone in another room, calls the nursing home, my dad's room. Dad. I went to this prayer meeting tonight. Amazing. I got this gift I want to share with you. And then starts praying in tongues over the telephone. My dad says, get your mother on the phone. (laughs) He comes up, you know, sheepishly tells my mom to get on the phone. She's like, you didn't. He's like, I did. She's getting on the phone thinking she's just going to get reamed out. Like, what have you done? What What are you exposing these kids to? So she jumps on the phone immediately trying to defend, right, all of the excuses. My dad says, Barbara, stop talking. I don't know what you're doing. I don't know what you're involved with, but it's got to be real. That boy just said the Lord's Prayer in Latin to me. It's the only thing I remember from my high school Latin classes. Now, how could a 10-year-old, a 10-and-a-half-year-old know the Lord's Prayer in Latin Never heard a word of Latin in his life. It led to my dad's conversion, right? In in the Acts, at the Feast of Pentecost, when the the apostles all started speaking in tongues, what happened? 3,000 people were converted because everything that they were saying was in the language of the people that were in town visiting God used my 10-year-old brother to speak a language that my dad knew in a way that convicted his heart and brought about his instantaneous conversion. Six months later, my dad was healed, miraculously healed. Started walking again after nine years of being paralyzed. That was an encounter. Not everyone has a a a powerful encounter like that, but that was my encounter. Generous hospitality to the encounter, right? I I had another one when I was probably about 15, 16 years old in high school. Ironically, I had started to drift away from my faith. Almost seems impossible, doesn't it? After having that kind of experience when you were 10, how, how could you five or six years later begin to drift away? Well, it was because I had a girlfriend my sophomore year in high school who, unbeknownst to me, had come down with some terminal illness and got very bitter and before God, started questioning her faith, started trying to get me to stop going to church and stop being involved with things in our youth ministry. I had another kid who was in my class, a very good friend of mine, who just started driving Two weeks after he got his license, he's in Iowa, rural Iowa. He's driving home one night and hits an icy patch, slips off the road, down into a ravine, into a creek, and drowns. 
Three months later, my girlfriend committed suicide, shot herself in the front seat of her car in her driveway. That's why I was drifting away from my faith. I, I, I was questioning, I was going through all kinds of things. This man who led the little youth group at the Baptist church, I, I had stopped going to our Catholic parish, uh, which that's a whole story in itself. I, I went to the funeral of my friend who died in the car accident, and I'm, the whole school went. Everyone knew this kid, and we didn't know what to do. Like, most of the people that were there weren't Catholic, and so when you're standing and sitting and kneeling, and like, none of, none of our friends had ever been into a Catholic church. They, and so you, you just, it was awkward, after the funeral was over, uh, the youth minister, who I didn't really know, I mean, I'd gone to a few things in the parish, but we're walking around the side of the church to the parish hall to go downstairs for the reception, and the youth minister sees me and a couple of my friends, and he says, can I talk to you three? And he looked mad, and I'm like, okay. And so he pulls us, like, off to the side, and he says, shame on you. I was like, what? Because you didn't, you didn't kneel or sit or stand at any of the times during, during that funeral mass. You, you know that you're Catholic. You should be proud of your Catholic faith. Just because none of your... And I'm sitting there listening to him like, who are you? I don't even know you. My friend just died. I never went back. Never went to anything at that parish. I mean, it just added to my confusion, right? Uh, so months later... One of my friends invites me to the Baptist church. And within a few weeks, the Baptist, the, the guy who ran the Baptist youth, it wasn't even really a youth minister, it was just a Bible study on Thursday nights. But he says, hey, there's this, there's this, uh, this great evangelist, David Wilkerson, if anyone's ever remembers him, you know, the cross and the switchblade. David Wilkerson is coming to Sioux City, Iowa. And I, I want to take a group up, up to see him. Okay, I'll go. I'll go. So this group of about 10, 15 of us, you know, load up in a couple of vans and go to Sioux City to see David Wilkerson. It was another encounter moment for me. David Wilkerson reminded me of the Pentecostal preacher. I, I remember sitting in the room and being mesmerized by him preaching and, and what he was saying and the stories that he was telling and, uh, and, and how powerful it was. And then he ends by saying... If, 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 you, if you are experiencing God tonight, if you want to open up your heart to God tonight, I want to invite you to stand. He didn't invite us up to the, the stage because, uh, I mean, there was, there was probably 10,000 people in this big auditorium. I want to invite you to stand tonight. I mean, I, I was probably the first person in the whole place to stand up because it reminded me of when I was nine and a half. And I'd gone through all of these months of feeling so far away from God and feeling so lost and like when I heard him preach and it brought me right back to when I was nine and a half and I'm like, yes, yes, this is what I've left. I've been away from this and, and I, I want it back. And I, I stood up and I was like, yes, I want, I want to invite God. You know, it was another encounter moment. I experienced God's love, not in the same way as I did when I was younger, but just as powerful. It, it, it was different because it was an experience of love 
where I knew that God understood every way that I was hurting. All the pain with this tragedy and these, these losses that, that were weighing on me so heavily, like I just knew in a moment that he understood it all. And he wanted to be with me. He wanted to stand with me. I became a little weird after that night. Because I connected the preacher and David Wilkerson somehow in my head, and I wanted to be like them. But I didn't know how to do that. We lived on a farm, and we had thousands of pigs. And so one day, I discovered that the pigs love to listen to preaching. <laughs> so I, I would bring a bag with me to the farm, into the barn, with my Bible in it, without anyone knowing, you know. And when my dad and my brothers were out doing other things, like, I would get a couple of bales of straw, and I would stand right outside of one of the pens, and I, and I would, like, open up, and I'd read a passage, and then I would just start preaching. And the pigs would just go crazy. They, they loved it. They, they would start running around in circles, you know, when you would get really excited and really passionate, you know. Uh, they, they'd, they'd run around in circles and start going, <laughs> And then my, my dad would come back. He'd come into the barn, you know, and like I'd put the Bible down real quick and I'd grab a, you know, like I'd act like I was forking something. But there's dust, every, like, like a cloud of dust, you know. And my dad would say, what is going on in here? And it's like, I, the pigs are crazy. They're so wild today. I don't know why they're so wound up. And he's like, they're, they're, he goes, there's so much dust and you can't even see in here. It's like, I know. My dad never did know the truth. So that was 16. I had another encounter. I mean, I, I obviously have encounters all through my life, but I'm, I'm just giving you a few. I had another one when I was 20. I stayed one summer at Franciscan working for the conference office. Uh, if any of you are familiar with Franciscan University out in Steubenville, they, they do these summer conferences all during the summer months. And they're, they're very powerful. And um, so I was working on staff one summer. And uh, the priest and deacons conference was just uh, this unique, it was a unique year. Um, they, they, were, they had a special theme that year of ecumenism. And so they had invited in these, uh, these Pentecostal and evangelical ministers to be the speakers at the conference this summer. So there's like six or seven hundred priests and deacons at this conference, and then all of these Pentecostal uh, and evangelical preachers, ministers that are that are doing the main main talks. Well, Vincent Sinan, who at that time was the president of the Charismatic Renewal for the whole country of the United States was one of the speakers. And he spoke one night on the Pentecostal and, and charismatic movement in, in the United States and about, about the Holy Spirit. And it was, it was, he gave a very, very powerful talk. Then how, how do you think he ends the talk? <laughs> I want to pray with you tonight for a greater outpouring of the Holy Spirit to all of these priests, right? And priests started lining up, like coming up to get in lines, and Vincent Sinan and Father Michael Scanlon and uh, a number of the other team members were walking around and were praying over all of these priests. Well, I'm working. I, I can't get prayed over because I'm on staff. I, I'm, 
I'm, I'm walking around trying to help and assist and, uh, you know, so it was, just a, it was a very, very powerful experience. Well, I'm standing right by the corner of the stage, watching and serving and doing what I'm supposed to do for my job. And then all of a sudden, I feel a tap on my shoulder. And I turn and look, and there's Vincent Sinan on his knees, tapping me on the shoulder, the, the, the main speaker. I'm like, uh, and, and so I'm immediately thinking it's, it's work-related. He needs me to do something. And he's like, I need you to come up here right now. I'm like, up on the stage? And he's like, yes, come up here right now. So I have to walk around, get to the steps, and, and get up onto the stage. And, and uh, I'm like, I'm thinking, again, I'm thinking he needs me to go get him something. He needs me to go do something. And uh, so I walk up to him, a little confused, waiting for direction. And, and he, he's standing there with Father Mike Scanlon. And he says, we're supposed to pray over you right now. And I'm like... What? Uh, I, I'm like, now, and my response was, I'm working. <laughs> and Father Mike Scanlon, who was the president of Franciscan University, he says, uh, you're off now. <laughs> so here I am, standing on the stage at this conference, and Vincent Sinan and Father Mike Scanlon pray over me. And I, I don't know if you've ever heard of anything like resting in the spirit. But I rest, I mean, like the two of them never even touched my head. Like they started to lift their hands and I just like fell over, fainted. And was, I was just in, I don't know how long I was on the ground there. Uh, but it was this amazing experience for me of God's presence and clarity. There's a lot of things going on in my life at that particular point in my life. I was nearing the end of my college years. I was getting ready to go on my cross-country trip to California. <laughs> but there, there was a lot of big decisions that, I, that were being made about where was, where was my future going. And God spoke to me about all of them in that moment. It was just this amazing encounter. Right? Three encounters. All of them marked in a very unique way, by, by love. If, if I step back and look at the encounters and really try to dig into them, what, what, was, what was God doing here? What, what was my experience all about? It, it was about him loving me in, in a very unique way. He was loving me. And I look back now on those experiences, and there's many more, right? Like I, I turned 51 this summer. So there, there's, there's a lot of years in between that 20-year-old experience and now. And, and I, could, I could keep going on and on, giving you other encounters and other experiences and other moments. God desires to encounter us. And our lives should be a constant meditation on those encounters. Here's what I mean. My marriage is fueled by me remembering 
the times that I've been in love with my wife. Because as anyone who's been married understands, you don't always feel like you're in love. There's actually times when I feel quite the opposite, actually. There's times when I kind of wonder, like, what the hell was I thinking? Like, I can't live with this person. (laughs) My wife is an extreme extrovert. So she says everything out loud, often with no filter. And now two of my children are exactly like this, okay? When we were just on the the trip to Florida, my wife, now this shows how she's changing with age, right? My son, my 14-year-old son, Jonathan, is a complete extrovert, and everything just comes out of his mouth with no filter at all. He's just like Meg. But when you're in a car driving around Orlando for like five, six days, and somebody's like, like two or three times, Meg said, John, stop talking. And I looked at her like, oh my gosh, like I can't tell you how many times in our marriage I wanted to say those exact words to you. I didn't say that, okay? And you can't tell her. Okay, this is just between us now. I don't even know what my point was with that. Uh, lost it all together. But, um, oh, yeah, so in those times in, in marriage, when, I, when the love is waning, when you feel, you know, you're, you're having those feelings of like not so much love, right? Love isn't a feeling, is it? Love is a decision. I stay in love, not by feeling in love. I stay in love by deciding I'm in love with this person. And in the times when I'm not feeling it so much, what do I do? I remember the times when I really did. I remember the good times. I remember the the great memories. I, I look back on, right? This is how we stay in love with God. We are human after all, right? We need this. We need human consolation. We need experiences of love. And during times of desolation, we call it spiritually, during times when we feel really far away from God or feel like God has distanced himself from us, which he, never, he doesn't, but we do feel like that at times. How do I get through those times? By remembering the times when I felt really close to him. So it's critical for me to remember the encounters. I got to remember when I was nine and a half. I got to remember when I was 16. I got to remember when I was 20. I got to remember these encounters because during times when I feel desolate, when times when I feel lonely and feel empty and feel broken, I look back on those times of consolation. And that fuels me because it reminds me of the relationship that I'm in. So I'm I'm generous in my hospitality to the encounter, but then I store the encounter in my memory. And and, and I constantly come back to it and remember it. So if if it's all about the encounter and the encounters are about love, I I, want to wrap up tonight with what I would call a scriptural school of this. 
who, who's, who's the greatest person that you could think of in all of Scripture that could model for us generous hospitality and receptivity? Well, it would be Mary. No question. She's the only person in all of Scripture who is so hospitable, so receptive, that she literally became pregnant with God. You can't get any more receptive than that. At least I don't think you can. <laughs> Correct me if I'm wrong, right? So the Annunciation is, is just a great scriptural school. And what's really fascinating, if you go to Luke 1, do, do you guys have your Bibles with you? Uh, if you have a Bible, th this is it's one of the fascinating things about Catholics. We don't carry Bibles around with us. And we really should. Um, in, in some ways, and this isn't a correction, this is just a, a, an invitation to you. In, in some ways, if you think about the, the progression that, that the bishop and Father Mark is talking about for your diocese, right? Generous hospitality, lively faith, prayer, study, formation. How can you do that without this in your hands all the time? I mean, you, you go to any evangelical church, any Protestant church where people are alive in their faith, they are walking around with the Bible everywhere they go. To, they carry their Bible to work with them. And I'm not talking about working for the church. I'm talking about any type of secular job. Like, there, there, there's something that the Protestants and the evangelicals have on us as Catholics, and it's a devotion to the Word. It's a devotion to the Scriptures. And some people think that that's just evangelical. It, it actually should be Catholic, we should have the Bible with us all the time, right? I, I used to, when, in my youth ministry days, I used to say to teenagers, you know, do you carry your Bible with you? And, and they would say, like, to school? I'm like, yes, to school. And like, they'd be so embarrassing. And I'm like, look, your Bible is your sword. It's, it's like your gun. How, if, if, if you were in the army, would you go out into the battlefield without your gun in your hand? You, 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 you wouldn't be caught dead doing that because you couldn't defend yourself. Like, the, the Bible is your tool. you got to carry it with you everywhere. So, a little side note, sorry. So, Luke chapter 1. Everyone's familiar with the story of the Annunciation, right? How, how many of you are familiar with the story? Because I, I don't want to have to read the whole thing, okay? Okay, so good. So, the, the vast majority of us. I'm, so, I'm not going to read it, and I'm not going to dig into great depth. I'm just going to pull out some key highlights for us. If you ever look at the Annunciation to Mary, don't miss that the story just before that was a second Annunciation. Who did the angel Gabriel appear to first? Not to Mary, but to Zechariah. That's an Annunciation also. He's announcing to Zechariah the birth of John the Baptist. And Zechariah's response to the whole thing was radically different than Mary's. And the outcome was radically different. But when you read the two stories, almost if you parallel them and read them side by side, you might be confused to think that the same thing is happening. And why does Gabriel respond so differently to Zechariah and, and than he does to Mary? It's because he's a man. <laughs> Men are held to a higher standard and Gabriel's just soft on women. Don't you think? I mean, he says to Zechariah that John the Baptist is going to be born. Your wife's going to be pregnant. She who was thought to be barren is, is now in her sixth month. 
And, and, and Zachariah says, how can this be? How is that any different than Mary saying, he tells her that she's going to give birth to the Messiah, and she says, how can this be? Doesn't it sound like the same thing going on? But to Zechariah, he says, you're not going to talk or, or hear anything for, for, until the baby's born. He actually says, uh, you know, I, I am Zechariah, you know, from, from God. You know, uh, he, you can just see him like growing up really big, you know, like big powerful angel. You know, Zechariah probably pooped. <laughs> seriously, seriously. That would have been a scary moment, you know. Here's, here's the subtle difference. And uh, I'm showing my age here because I can't read my own Bible. Zechariah was troubled when he saw him. So th- this, is, this is the interesting thing. Zechariah is troubled when he saw Gabriel. What does it say in the Annunciation to Mary? Mary was troubled by what he said. Big, big, big difference. Zechariah was just afraid because he saw an angel. Mary heard what the angel said and was troubled. It wasn't fear. So big difference. Then the angel said to him, do not be afraid for, the, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall name him John. Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And this is when he said, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. Behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things come to be. It's like he's getting reprimanded, right? Mary, so what happens with Mary? The angel appears to Mary and So, again, Mary was uh, troubled by what he said. And then she says, uh, <laughs> Does anyone have my glasses? <laughs> They're in my bag. <laughs> no, I'll, I'll get it here in just a second. This is taking me a minute. Um, Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I have no husband? Sounds like the same question, but these are radically different questions. And this is, this is the big lesson that I want to pull out, because this really is a school. Everything that I've been talking about tonight, about generous hospitality for the encounter. This is a, an encounter of two different people in Scripture We can read through and see two very different responses. And both of them are responses that we could legitimately have to an encounter with God. What can we learn from this? So let's just look at at the first thing, just the fear. Zachariah is afraid because he sees an angel. Mary is afraid of what the angel says. How does the angel greet Mary? Hail, full of grace. The Lord is with you. Now, we may not be as familiar with those words. Not the hell full of grace, but the Lord is with you. That line 
was spoken numerous times in the Old Testament to prophets who were called to be prophets for the Lord. Mary, who as a young girl going through the Beit Midrash, the school that Hebrew children were, were trained in, would have memorized all of those stories. When she hears the angel say those words to her, can you see why she would be troubled? To get a greeting that was given to prophets? The Lord is with you. You know what usually followed behind those words? Some big thing that God wanted you to do. So Mary hears those words and she's immediately like, oh crud, what's he going to ask me to do now? Because if the Lord is with me, he's only with me for something I'm supposed to accomplish. Right? He's not just with me for, you know, to be with me. There's something he wants me to do. What's coming next? That's why she's troubled. Zachariah is actually fearful just seeing an angel. But then when Gabriel makes the announcement, the announcement about John the Baptist, Zachariah says, how can this be? I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in her years. Mary says, how can this be? I have no husband. Do you hear how those are very different questions? Is it impossible for an old couple to get pregnant? No. Implausible, maybe. But is it impossible? No. Is it miraculous for an older woman to get pregnant? Not really. It's physically possible. Miraculous is something that's outside of physical possibility. Zachariah's question is a question of doubt. How can this be, I'm an old man, my wife's an old woman, and it's really implausible that we could get pregnant at this time in our life? Now, Mary. Is it possible for someone to get pregnant if she hasn't slept with a man? Is it possible? Come on, even the teenagers know this. No, it's not it's physically impossible. It is not possible. It's truly miraculous for Mary to be pregnant. Her question isn't a question of doubt. Her question is a question of wonder. How can this be? I'm going to be pregnant when I've not been with a man? This is amazing. Now I know why the Lord is with me. Do you see this make sense? You see, the encounter leads to the Lord revealing something. This is the consolation, the love. Don't, Don't miss what happens with both people because Zachariah didn't get punished. Both got a great gift. Zachariah was given a silent retreat. For three months. Three months silent retreat. Beautiful. He wasn't going to be able to say a thing. And he just had to be quiet. And, and you know, here's how you know it's a gift. Because you see the fruit, right? Does, does anyone ever pray Liturgy of the Hours? Have you ever prayed Liturgy of the Hours or Christian prayer? What's the one prayer that we say every single day? The Canticle of Zachariah. 
After his three-month silent retreat, what comes pouring out of Zachariah's mouth becomes a prayer that we continue to pray for the rest of the history of our church. He was on a silent retreat that led to great, great fruit. It was beautiful. And because he was quiet for so long, it just came bursting out of him. So he was given a gift in his doubt, in his fear. He needed more time to think. He needed more time to listen and still. And so God gave it to him. You will be quiet and won't speak until these things come to be, right? Mary was also given a gift. Your kinswoman, Elizabeth, who was thought to be barren, is now in her sixth month. Actually, I'm saying this wrong. Zechariah actually got a nine-month silent treat because when he was told this, Elizabeth was just getting pregnant. So he literally was silent for the entire term. So a nine-month silent retreat. Mary finds out that Elizabeth is pregnant in her sixth month. What does she do? She, the next day, right, she makes haste to go and visit Elizabeth. So... Mary asks a question in wonder, in amazement. How can this be? How can this miraculous thing be? And what does Gabriel do? He doesn't doesn't reprimand her like he does Zechariah. He says, your kinswoman Elizabeth, who is thought to be barren, is now in her sixth month. So she's given a confirming sign. What does she do? She immediately goes to the sign of confirmation. What, what do most of us do? We go see the confirmation and then we go on about our business. What did Mary do? She stayed with the confirmation for three months until the baby was born. Now that's what I call spiritually milking it for all that it's worth. She didn't lose a drop of the confirmation. She soaked it in and soaked it in and soaked it in until it came to full fruition. That's generous hospitality, generous receptivity. She took the encounter and literally let it stretch out for three months. It's a beautiful model for us. That's why I call this a school, you know, a scriptural school. I had a nice picture there of the Annunciation, which I forgot to show you. Beautiful. So Mary becomes this great image for us of what this looks like. The learning principle, and this would be the thing I think we really got to pull out of this. Zachariah, doubt and fear. Doubt and fear. Mary, wonder and gratitude. Wonder and gratitude. That's the posture that we want to find ourselves in. So this weekend, I I want to invite you into this kind of experience for yourself. I don't know where you're all at. I mean, I know that this summit is open to everyone in the diocese. 
My guess is, though, that a lot of you come here, you're leaders in your parishes. You're leaders in different ministries. You're working for the diocese. You're a priest. You're a religious. You're coming here to get more stuff, to go do your thing. You got lots of work to do. Lots of events to plan, lots of ministry to do. And and you're coming here to get ideas and to get kind of fueled up to go back to work. It's not a good way to look at the encounter. There's a great quote by St. Bernard of Clairvaux. Unfortunately, I don't have it on a slide, but he, he says, one would be wise to see themselves not merely as a channel, but as a reservoir. For a channel simply transmits something from one place to another without retaining a drop for itself. While a reservoir first fills itself up and then without losing any of what it has, waters the fields that it's meant to water. If you're a priest, if you're religious, if you're a leader in ministry, if you work for the diocese, if you work for a parish, don't settle for being a channel. Don't just take nifty things that you hear and then figure out how you can work them into your next talk. Don't go spend time in prayer planning what you're going to say in your next talk or planning your next program or planning your next event. Be a reservoir. Be like Mary. She soaked it in, soaked it up. For three months, she just stayed with it. And then without losing any of what she had, she waters the church, the fields of the church. Every single one of us are meant to be like this. Soak in the encounter. Be generous and hospitable to the encounter. Because the the encounter is all about love. God desires to love us. God desires to not just be in the formal living room. He wants to be in every area of our life. Let him in. Open wide the doors, right? Let him love us in in all of these areas. That's the invitation this weekend. As we continue to to go through this experience together, I, I just want to invite you to that monasticism of the heart. Be paying attention to the movements. How's God moving in your heart? How's he stirring things up in you? It's going to be different for every single person. This this might actually be great mealtime conversation over the next day. What's, What's God doing in your heart? How are you experiencing God through the talks, through what we're doing together? God desires to love us. This is a great quote from Pope Francis in Evangelii Gaudium. Jesus Christ loves you. He gave his life to save you. And now he is living at your side every day to enlighten, strengthen, 
and free you. Let's just close tonight with a prayer. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, we thank you for this wonderful opportunity to be together this weekend. I thank you for each and every person here, no matter what age, no matter what their circumstances are in their life or where they're coming from. I'm just so grateful that everyone who is here is here because I know you're grateful. And you desire to encounter us this weekend. Lord, I pray for the grace of receptivity for each and every one of us. Expand our capacity to receive you. Mary, in a special way, pray for us this weekend. Pray that we could be like you, receptive, open, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Amen. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We have a few minutes here at the end uh, for uh, some questions. If, if anyone have questions, we, ha- we do have a microphone that we can bring around so everyone can hear. Um, I went a little bit longer than I was supposed to, so. Any questions tonight? I've got a question. So what happened between 16 and 20 when you were going to the Baptist church and then wound up at uh, Steubenville? Well, that's a big question. Um, I almost left the church. Uh, The experience at that David Wilkerson night in Sioux City catapulted me into the Baptist youth group. Uh, The next year, I became the leader. I was kind of elected the student leader of the whole group, which sent me on five weekends over the next year to a leadership training thing through the Mid-American Baptist Church. By the time I was a senior in high school, I had decided, why, why am I Catholic? Like, I, I get up early in the morning on Sunday to go to the 7 o'clock Mass to make it down to the Baptist Church for their Sunday worship service and for Bible school. Uh, and I, so I started talking to my parents about, it's just... This is kind of silly, like I'm, I'm going to the Catholic Church just because I'm supposedly Catholic. Um, and so my parents started to get really worried and concerned. They started researching and looking. And uh, my dad was very smart. He, they met with me one night, you know, probably around Christmas time, and said, you know, we, we, we want you to be free to choose where your path here, but we can't give you our blessing to leave the Catholic Church until you've gone to Steubenville for a year. If you go there for just a year and you still want to leave the Catholic Church, we'll give you our full blessing. 
That was a risky thing to say, but they were pretty confident that I would have a good experience. And I did. I, I, I went there all four years, and uh, the rest is history, I guess. So. Yes? Um, so the question, did everyone hear that, Can, how my father was healed? And again, that would be a really long story, but um, during, during the nine years that he was paralyzed, he, he, was, he was only paralyzed on the right side of his body, so, which as you can imagine made things excruciatingly painful because he couldn't walk because the right side of his body wouldn't work. Uh, and he started to get bed sores and cramps and aches and all kinds of things that were happening on the left side of his body. So over those nine years, they did several brain surgeries to cut, sever, and burn all of the nerves on the left side of his body so that he would basically be paralyzed completely on both sides uh, and basically made him, you know, uh, he's, he had use of his arms, so he was kind of about from here down that he had no feeling. So they, they made him a paraplegic, basically, through the brain surgeries that they did. The brain surgeries created scar tissue and all kinds of other complications for him. And so he started having seizures, pretty serious ones. And when, close to when I was about 10, you know, so almost six months after that night, um, he had a grand mal seizure and everyone thought he was gonna die. And the nursing home called my mom, my mom called the prayer group so the deacon from the, the prayer group at our Catholic parish went to give him last rites and communion. During him receiving communion, my dad had a vision. So he, he was having a grand mal seizure and was completely incapacitated, but was aware that the deacon was there. Uh, he couldn't even open his mouth, and so the deacon put a little, little piece of the Eucharist under his tongue. But during that whole time, my dad had a vision of Jesus coming to the end of his bed in a big white cloud and getting down on his knees at the foot of his bed and washing his feet. And when the vision ended, he was sitting up in bed, which he hadn't done for almost seven years. And, and he knew that something had happened. And uh, he sat there for a long time, not sure what to do, and didn't know, if, should he try to put his legs out? Should he try and stand up? He was just kind of dazed. And he kept thinking this was all a dream. And then one of the nurses came by the door, walked by, stopped, came back, looked in. And he's looking at them like, what's going on? And they're looking at the floor. And there was a puddle of water all around the foot of his bed, like eight, 10 feet in diameter. And the, the, the nurse is like, where did all this water come from? And... And so, the, you know, I'm going to have to go get a mop. They left. When they left, he's like, okay, that wasn't a dream. And he tried to get himself out of bed, and he walked into the bathroom. And he, that, that, that's, that's kind of how it happened, basically. Yeah. So. Any other questions? Yes. Can you tell us about, um, among other denominations, I noticed that the Baptists um, have a really issue with Mary, you know, um, and also having uh, the brothers of Jesus 
you know, since you said they, they really read the scriptures, and um, I know that probably the lack of the guidance of, of interpretation yeah. of the scriptures, but, uh, you know, they said that the other brothers um, were the um, sons of other Marys, not Mary, you know, so. Yeah. So, and again, I'm not sure if I'll be able to justice to this question because it's such a, a deep question, but in, in a in a very surfacey way, the Protestant evangelicals, uh, which the, the Baptist church would be a Protestant denomination, uh, there's concern in some ways that Catholics worship Mary, which we don't. We honor Mary as the mother of God and because of the role that she plays in salvation history. As Catholics, we have an understanding theologically that Mary is what we call the mediatrix of graces. So it, it, it basically means that we're Mary not open and receptive to the role that she played. Um, everything else that happened after her wouldn't have been able to happen. She literally, the, the whole plan of God's salvation came through her and through her womb, right? Which is pretty amazing. Uh, so that deeper understanding for us as Catholics is something that's not acknowledged and fully accepted by Protestant and evangelical denominations. So there, there's, there, that's a real tension point theologically, right? Um, and all throughout my years in high school with the Mid-American Baptist Church, but then when I went to Steubenville, when I graduated from college, the year that I graduated, I actually started working with Young Life, and I went through two years of training as a Young Life to be a Young Life staff and started a Catholic Young Life club in Steubenville, Ohio. Uh, two years later, we had 200 kids coming to it every single week. Uh, it ended up being, the, and I, I would take kids to summer camp every, every summer. And what ended up happening was I would end up in these late night conversations with all of these Protestant evangelical Young Life uh, staff members and missionaries sitting in the hot tub, like the camps that we went to had these hot tubs and all the counselors would go hang out in the hot tubs when all of the campers would go to the cabins for night for Bible study. And uh, we would just get into these heated, heated conversations and they would be drilling me with all these questions about Mary and the Eucharist. Those are the two, Mary, the Eucharist, and the saints. Like those are the, the primary stumbling, stumbling blocks, right? Um, well, about seven or eight of those young life staff all converted to Catholicism over those 10 years that, that I was working there, because I would just sit up sometimes till one, two, three o'clock in the morning, sitting in the hot tub, you know, like wrinkling your skin, wrinkling up, like, can we go get out of the hot tub? I can't sit in the water any longer. Uh, but we'd have these intense conversations with all of their questions about this. And what's a shame, I think, is there's not, there's, there's not many Catholics that when somebody comes and attacks you about your belief in Mary or your belief or why do you pray to saints or why do you believe in the Eucharist, you know, like you cannibals, you Catholics are cannibals, right? Most Catholics actually can't explain why we do what we do and why we believe what we believe. And what I found was, so the, these, these guys would come at me kind of attacking, but my response didn't have to be defensive because I actually knew I knew what I believed and I could explain it. And I would say, you, you don't understand. You don't understand what you're missing. Like, let, let me tell you what we actually believe about the Eucharist. Let me tell you what we actually believe about Mary. And what ended up happening over, you know, a number of years is it was so compelling that many of them was like, 
forget it. Like, I just need to become Catholic. How do I do this, right? Uh, so th does that answer your question? Yes. Did you ever consider becoming a priest? I did. I actually lived for about three years in a house, a formation house that was moving me into seminary. And uh, I'll, I'll make this a short story because, and it's just absolutely true. The, the man who is the head of the household one afternoon, because I, I was in there longer than anyone else. I just couldn't make up my mind. Uh, so like, it's just, no one else stayed in that house for two and a half years. Uh, and so like, I went through about two or three different, you know, uh, cohorts of people that lived together in there. And uh, so one afternoon he met me up at work and said, uh, we need to make some decisions. <laughs> and I was like, okay. Because uh, he got he's like, where are you at with your vocation? Like, you either got to move into seminary, or you got to move out of the house. Like, wh where are you at here? And uh, I was like, well, this is pretty abrupt, not very welcoming. Uh, I actually said that to him. I was like, well, that's kind of harsh, Tim. And he's like, Jim, you've been in here for two and a half years. No one else, like, no one else is still here that you started with. Uh, and I was like, I just don't know. I'm really struggling. I just don't have a lot of clarity around this. And then he said, you know, I really never do this but can, can I just share with you an insight that I have? And I'm like, okay. You would make an amazing priest. This is, what, this is what he said to me. You would make an amazing priest, but you wouldn't be a holy priest. Wow. I moved out of the house a week later. Because it, it just resonated for me. Like, you know, and I think this would be different for every person, but that truth just resonated for me. I'm, I had a lot of gifts and a lot of talents that as, as, a, as a priest, and particularly as somebody that wasn't married and was free to do ministry, I think I would have excelled. I think I would have been very good at ministry and I would have been very fruitful. But I think I would have gotten very prideful and I think I would have gotten, uh, I, I think those words are true. Like, I wouldn't have been holy. And there's nothing like the humiliation of being a parent. Uh, I fail literally on a daily basis trying to live out my vocation. And I don't feel like I have the skill set for it, if that makes sense. Like, I just, uh, like, I, I missed a gene when it came to parenting and being a good husband. And so I constantly have to depend upon God and work at that in my life. And that, I think, day by day, week by week, year by year, is making me more holy, hopefully. Uh, so we probably better wrap up there, right? Uh, more, more to come tomorrow. You know, the stories are so compelling, and I just, I'm still stuck in the living room. I'm sorry. And, and that and the cigarette, and I'm kind of glad we didn't know one another, because that would have, yeah, the cigarette. Father Steve Beagler probably has something to learn from you there on tr practical tricks. Happily, he's gone. Um, tomorrow, just want to, number one, just tell you a little bit about our morning. 
um, because I know you're going to want to be here for masses at 7 a.m., breakfast at 7.30 in the cafeteria where we had our dinner, uh, morning prayer is at 8.15 if you want to sleep in a bit, you, you just don't want to receive Eucharist, we won't go there. Okay, but morning prayer, 8.15, and then we begin back again with Jim at 